Father, we ask that your word would be our only rule today. We pray that your spirit will be our only teacher. And we pray, our God, that your glory might be our only goal. For it's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I had a rough time deciding on what to preach. I thought about Ecclesiastes, where I could talk to you about the bowels and the, um, and the worms and things. So there it was. Ecclesiastes, bowels, worms, Hebrews 13, you know, number of things. I chose Hebrews 13. So I know I disappointed some folks in the first service when I told them that my job is not to entertain you. They got kind of upset, but... That's the way it goes. My job is not to entertain you. You know, when we come to God's word, one of the things that we um, need to remind ourselves is that we have been given God's word in order that we know what to believe about him. And then knowing what we believe about him, find out what duty he expects of us from knowing his word. Well, as we look through the New Testament, oftentimes we look at passages of scripture that uh, books that will begin with theology. It will talk to us about God. We will, we will have theology proper. We will have Christology. We will have pneumatology. We will have ex- eschatology. We will have all of the theologies to figure out who and what God is. But the interesting thing is that we come usually to the end of the book, and the writer of the book then tells us, because we know who our God is, then these are the things that we ought to to do. And so that's kind of where we are here in the book of Hebrews as we look at Hebrews 13. We have seen that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. We've seen that he is superior to Moses. We've seen that he is superior to Aaron. And we see he has provided the superior sacrifice that was given once for all that you and I might have life. So we look to glorify our God in the things that are taking place as we lift Christ's name up. But now we come and he says, these are the things that I want you to know about myself and about my son. And therefore, this is what I want you to do. One of the things that we need to understand is that there is no orthopraxy without orthodoxy. We need to know what true doctrine is in order for us to live the way God wants us to live. So as we look at the passage here, we look at the passage that tells us. In chapter 10, verse 25, the writer of the letter tells us that we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but instead we should be together to lift each other up. Now when we come to chapter 13 of the letter, we are given some practical ways that we can live our lives for Christ within the church as members of God's family. So let's take a look at some of the things that the writer to the book of Hebrews has given us. Unfortunately, each and one, every one of the verses in the first six verses, our our verse preach a whole sermon on them. So I decided that I would do that. Two o'clock should be good. So uh, let's take a look and see. I, I, Dr. McFadden, give me this. No, don't think so. So the first thing we look at when we look at this passage, it says, let brotherly love continue. When we look at this in the Greek, we understand that it is a present, per- it's a present active 
uh, command that's given. It's something that should take place and be in our lives each and every day of our lives. And the command is this, that we let brotherly love continue. That's why we have that word continued there. The word used here is Philadelphia. Oftentimes we talk about the uh, agapao or the agape love. Here is the specific word where we have that word Philadelphia, which talks about the aspect of having, uh, having love within the family. Uh, and you and I are in the family of God uh, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so we are to continue in brotherly love toward each other. I have to tell you, when I was pastoring in even, uh, the Evangelical Free Church in, in Bloomington, Illinois, the hardest thing in all of the world was for me to preach. It was easier to preach the first service because my family wasn't there. The second service I preached, my wife and kids were there, and it makes it harder because they know you in real life. You know? So you say things and you look out and she goes, yeah, you hear that? You know? She doesn't say it out loud. But you, you husbands know what I'm talking about. Right? Yeah. Practice what you preach, bud. You know. So sometimes it's a thing that we look at, but, but we are family. And one of the things that happens in family is that we get to know each other pretty well. And we see things that perhaps we don't, uh, don't approve of or don't like or we're different or whatever. But he calls us to love each other. When we look at the New Testament, we're often told that we, we are to love our neighbor, and that is true. But when I look at this passage, it seems, though, this neighbor is very specific. This neighbor is one who is a member of the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. You've probably heard that little ditty that goes something like this. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. Jesus told his disciples that the world would know them by their love and that the world would know that we're his disciples if we have love for one another. And I think that we, we sometimes fail to look at that emphasis in that passage where he's talking about how we love brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where true love comes from. The problem that we face is that when we know somebody, there's usually ways that we can figure out that, gee, I don't know that I agree with that. But he calls us to have love for each other. There are some who hold doctrinal positions who think that they're superior to others who have a different doctrinal position. And there's pride instead of love. And what he calls us to have is in Jesus Christ, he calls us to have love for each other. The question then is, how is this accomplished? In Romans chapter 12, when we have been told that our minds are to be transformed because we've received the mercies of God. Isn't that interesting? My mind's transformed because God's mercy has made me a different person. That's the idea in those words. But then, he has talked about doctrine from chapters 1 through chapter 11. Now in chapter 12, verse 1, he's basically saying to us, since you have these great mercies or these teachings about Jesus Christ, 
this is how you ought to live. And one of the first things that he deals with is, how do we live with each other? This is what he goes on to say. We are told in verse 5 that we are one body. We have come together to do, do the will of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, that love is to continue with the context being that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than others. In Philippians 2, we're told that we are to humble ourselves as Christ did with the concept that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. It's not about how great I am, it's how much God loves you and how much he loves me and his mercy and his grace, and we are both dependent upon our God for what we have. In other words, as one writer put it, true brotherly love is not self-centered, rather it is sacrificial. Do we look at brothers and sisters in Christ and say, what can I do to help? They're important to God, therefore they are important to me. The second thing that he talks about us being is hospitable in verse 2 when he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entered, entertained angels unaware. The word hospitality literally means to be a friend of a stranger. We often hear the word xenophobe, right? That's a word that's used often in the news. They're xenophobic and it means fear of strangers. That's what it means. Well, the word here is the idea is to be a friend of a stranger. In the Old Testament, one of the things that we see over and over again is that when sojourners or strangers came into the land, the people were to treat them with hospitality. That was the Old Testament. And, some, and it says that some, in this passage it says that some that uh, some entertained angels unaware. And these people would have immediately thought about Abraham, right? Abraham had these visitors come to his house. They were the ones that told Sarah that she was going to have a baby. She laughed at them. They basically said, why are you laughing? She said, I wasn't laughing. And they said, oh, yes, you were. We heard it. They went on down to Sodom, and they cleared things out in Sodom and Gomorrah. But one of the things that we learn is that these people came and they were literally messengers, angels of God who had come there uh, uh, and Abraham, not aware of that apparently, was blessed by the fact that they were there. The word angel simply means messenger. And there are times that God brings messengers by way of strangers into our lives to teach us what he wants us to learn. When I look at this, I believe that the writer is challenging us to be stranger-friendly in our churches. One of the things that Father Don and I hear over and over from people who come to our church is that we're a friendly church, and I hope that that's the case. They tell us how they have gone to other churches for one, two, or more times, and no one, and they're the ones that use the term, no one talked to them. No one talked to them. They said that our church was friendly. I thank God for that testimony. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, are we open to be used by God 
in the lives of people that we don't know. So that means at the time of when we do the passing of the peace, you know what you're, you need to do? Look around for somebody you don't know and say, hey, just want you to know. Let me read what, here you go. This has got to be right because it was written by an evangelical preacher back then. One evangelical free church pastor wrote about showing hospitality. You are called to show love to the new kid at school, your Muslim neighbor, your atheist cousin, an illegal immigrant, a political refugee, or someone with a criminal history. But you are also called to love and receive the widow that sits beside you on the pew at church or the young couple with children that live far from their families. He goes on to say, serve these people, feed them, clothe them, and invite them into your home. But most importantly, invite them into your hearts by loving them with the love of Christ Jesus. Biblical hospitality is not merely a work of our hands, but involves our heart. You know, we have Matt, uh, Father Matt down in, down in uh, um, Tampa, who runs the Muslim outreach. Do you know what he uses? He uses hospitality. They will find someone who is Muslim in background and go and see what they can do to help them get to know these people. And then perhaps God will give them the opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. Because you see, our love for Christ should come out in the way that we treat other people, whether we know them or not. So hospitality is another thing that he calls us to do, to love, our, to love each other, to be hospitable. Then he says, remember those who are in prison in verse 3. You know, I hope, I hope you're following along a little bit with your, either your bulletin or your Bible and, 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 and looking at these things because they're really great. This is to keep in mind those who are in prison. Now, one of the things that we look at here is that the question is, is this talking about all prisoners or is this talking about people who are in prison because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I lend, a, I, I lend, I, I, I lean more toward the idea this, this is dealing with people who know and love Jesus Christ and they're in jail or in prison or uh, they've been set off someplace because of their faith. I lean toward that. But I also think that there's more here than just that. I think he calls us to be available to prisoners because the prisoners were people who, who, who were looked at as not worthy of anything. The writer asked the readers to think these as, as though they were the ones in prison. The idea is, what would happen? What would happen if you were there? What would you want if you were there? Jesus himself makes the visitation of people who are in prison uh, an example of the proof of a relationship with him. You remember back in Matthew chapter 25, there are the sheep and the goats, and they will say to him, um, you know, we walked alongside, we, we told people about you, we did this. And Jesus says to them, yeah, but you didn't. When I was naked, you didn't give me clothes. When I was sick, you didn't, you didn't take care of me. When I was in prison, you didn't come to see me. And then the sheep come along and they said, uh, and he says to them, when I was naked, you gave me clothes. 
when I was sick, you came alongside me and walked with me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And they said, when, was, when, did, when, when, did, when were you in prison? When were you ever naked? When were you ever sick? And you remember what he says to them? When you've done it to one of these, you've done it for me. Isn't that an interesting thing? Again, it's not a matter of what I do. It's a matter of what is my relationship in my mind. How do I do things in order that God might be glorified and that his name might be lifted up? It's not about just checking boxes. It's about having a love and a concern. This apparently was something set, that set Christians apart in the Greek or Roman world. In an article in Christianity Today, it says, So, how did early Christians respond to prisoners? They responded with dramatic and organized care. In doing so, they gained the attention of many within the Roman world. Certainly, people visited prisoners, but Christians sustained attention regularly and gener generosity to prisoners as something new and distinctly Christian in the Roman world. Christians became known by authorities for their extraordinary efforts they put into visiting and caring for prisoners. Now, I don't imagine that if we went down to the Marion County Jail, we would find very many people that are there because of their faith. I just, I, you know, we live in a country where, I know, things are changing. But we live in a country right now where we can share our faith. We're here, aren't we? They haven't closed us down. They haven't told you when you talk to your neighbor that you can't talk to them about Jesus. Have they? They might try. Some places might try. But that hasn't happened. So there are many people who are there, who are in need. They're looked down upon. Some of you have been involved in jail ministry personally. You've gone to the jails. You've spoken at the jails. Some of you have been... Um, been, have given to ministries, jail ministries. Some of you have participated in, in Operation Angel Tree, where that's ministering to those who are in jail by way of their families. What we need to understand is that we can minister to those who are in jail or in prison in various ways, and God may call us to do that. We may say to them that they well deserve to be there, but one thing of which I need to remind myself is that except for the grace of God, there go I. Let us pray for the imprisoned. If God lays a ministry on to the prisons on our heart, let's be willing to do what God asks us to do. The fourth, in the fourth verse, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God, will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So let's talk about the word marriage first. When we read this word in the New Testament, it often is used and is translated with the word wedding. You know, and, and I think that's significant. I think that's significant. It's not just a matter of, I've decided that I'm married, so I can do what I want to do, in a marriage relationship. God gave the responsibility to the people to see that there was a covenant between a man and a woman. 
to be husband and wife. And down through the ages of the church, that has been done through the rite of marriage, where God has, where God through the ceremony has asked, we've asked God to bless that marriage. We're reminded in our rite of marriage that the bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church, and Holy Scripture commends it to be honorable among all people. Jesus teaches us that it was established in the Old Testament, in the very beginning of time, at creation, that a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife so that they became one flesh. The word there, cling, means to be glued together, to be joined together and fastened together through God's covenant with us. You know, the interesting thing is, I, I, I love our right of marriage because they, they come, and we come in the sight of God. Are there people there? Absolutely. But who is the, who, who are the, what, what is the marriage covenant? To whom are we making the promise that we're going to do these things? None other than God himself. The word that's used for honor here is the word that's used to, to lift up, to, to esteem it, to make it a, 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 a wonderful thing, to hold it in a high position. The interesting thing is that in Matthew 19, Jesus uses this with the idea of staying together. God makes, God makes uh, allowances in, in, in certain ways, but the idea is that a man is to cling to his wife. Now, I don't know what the Greek word for superglue is, or whether there is a Greek word for superglue. But if there was a Greek word for superglue, that's probably what would be used here. And you and I both know that we tr when we try to tear something apart with superglue, it's not an easy thing. It breaks. And so we need to be reminded, husbands and wives, that we have made a commitment not just in front of people, but before God himself to be husband and wife. And the only way that we can continue to do these things is when both of us are keeping our eyes on Jesus. When the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and is willing to give his life for her. And as a wife who comes alongside to be what God has given to the man as a gift to glorify God in their lives together. Unfortunately, we live in a society that does not take marriage seriously. God said that marriage bed should be undefiled, meaning kept from being deformed by what that which God forbids. How often do we hear that a man and a woman will live together to make sure that they're compatible without the marriage ceremony? God never intended that. 
we come in this passage and, and, and he basically says, let marriage be held honorable and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The word immoral is the word fornicator. It's a broad term. Adulterous has the idea of one who is in a relationship who is not keeping covenant. By the way, I think that that covenant is not just physical covenant. You know, uh, those of us who are older remember, remember Jimmy Carter and how he got himself in trouble. Right? Have you ever committed adultery? And Jimmy said, if any man thinks he's committed adultery, oh man, the evangelical world went out of their mind. Right? But the truth of the matter is, we can break our covenant through our minds. One of the reasons why pornography is so bad, we break, we break the, more, the covenant that God has given to a husband and a wife. Sexual relationships outside of a marriage, a marriage covenant are wrong in God's sight. And I don't care what kind of marriage, uh, what kind of uh, acts we are talking about. I'm talking about anything that is outside of the covenant of marriage. God calls that to be wrong and defiling marriage. Do we lift up? Do we lift up in our lives? And, 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 you know, sometimes we, we talk, I've, you know, I was listening to, YouTube and this guy came on and he goes, okay, admit it. How many of you men are glad you're married? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. None of you are. Well, you know what? You know what? God calls us, men and women, to be happy in the covenant that he's given to us in our marriage vows and ask him to watch over us. Oh, well. It's just interesting to me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about immorality there, and he reminds us that you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit, and that we ought not do anything to defile the temple. The last thing that I want to talk with you about, that's not quite two yet. The last thing that I want to talk to you about is keep free from the love of money. The word here has the meaning of, of character. When it talks about, when he says, uh, keep your life, that word life there is character. That's, that's the word that's used there. What is your character? What, what are you really? What's really important to you? what he's talking about here. How you act, which goes along with two words that deal with feelings. Did you notice here he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content. Keep it free from the love of money. All right? There is nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with working to make ourselves better. 
The problem comes when it becomes our source of an idolatrous relationship that we give way uh, to God's commands to accomplish what we want to accomplish in finances. When John D. Rockefeller, who, by the way, would make Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos look like paupers in our day and age, if we translated that over, was asked how much money was enough. His answer was just a little bit more. And that was the character of his life. That was the character of his life. This is the guy that owned Standard Oil. This is the guy that owned an awful lot of the railroads movement. This is the guy basically that controlled finances in the United States. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. I was reading an article that was entitled, How Much, How Much Income is Enough for Well-Being? Parenthesis, according to research, parenthesis, question. An interesting article from which the following quote comes. If you worship money and things, if they were if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trek is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Do you understand that? Do I need, little, do I need to do it a little slower, honey? Yeah. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily conscience. Am I content? Am I content? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul indicated that he had learned to be content whatever state that he was in, whether he had little, whether he had much. Nothing wrong with having much. Paul didn't say, gee, I wish I didn't have much. He did say, you know, I have little, but he says, I'm content. I have peace in my heart. My character is good because I know I am where. And that doesn't mean that I don't go to work. And that doesn't mean that I try to meet the needs that I have. It, it, it's there. But I don't let it... Um, I don't let it control me. I don't let it control me. The reason is that the person who recognizes that he has God, who cares about him, because we go on down here, and this is what it says. Uh, you will be content, for he has said, I will never leave you, and I will not forsake you. I'm not going to forget you. We have a God who knows where we are. We have a God that knows what happens. We have learned that we have a God who is powerful enough to save us. So we have a God that's there. And then he goes on to say, as he quotes from the Psalms, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? God's got me. We go over to Romans chapter 8, and what do we learn? All things work together for good to them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. Does he know everything that's happening? What can separate me from the love of Christ? Absolutely nothing. 
not famine, not pestilence, not sword. I am in the love of God. I can be content knowing that I've got a God that walks alongside me. Let me just conclude by this. William Barclay in his, his, his uh, text says, When Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, examined the Christians and reported back to the emperor Trajan, he had to admit, even though he was looking for a charge on which to condemn them, that at their Lord's Day meeting they, quote, bound themselves by an oath, not for any criminal end, but to avoid theft or robbery or adultery, never to break their word nor repudiate a deposit when, when called upon to refund it. In the early days, the Christians present such purity to the world that not even their critics and their enemies could find fault. Can they say that same thing about the church today? Will they be able to say that about Christ the King Anglican Church? As we look at these things, I see there are some areas in which life I have failed. God told us that if we do that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He asks us to do these things. We are human, and there will be times that we will not be able to do all of the things that God asks us to do because we're human. Read Romans chapter 7. Things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. I was doing my devotions the other day, and I came across this prayer, Gordon Green, and I pray it now for myself and hopefully on your behalf as well. Father God, we thank you and praise you for being our covenant keeper, for we are prone to disobey and violate your covenant. So would you please work in us a deeper understanding of your grace and growing desire to obey you, born in our love and gratitude for you.